Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for real estate investors looking to protect their assets, save on taxes, and build their wealth with Clint Coons. Clint is an attorney, author, avid real estate investor, and featured instructor at Anderson's tax and asset protection events held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, everybody, guys? It's Clint Coons here. And in this episode, what I want to do is introduce you to someone that I've been following. I was just really impressed with his life story. This individual had 87 doors, get this, by the time he was 24, and he didn't do it with his own credit or his own money. This individual that we're going to be bringing on today is Daniel Kwok. He's got a great YouTube channel, a huge following. He talks all about various real estate investing strategies that you can use to implement in growing your own portfolio or about financial aspects of investing. So it's a real treat to have him on because he's going to share with you some of the strategies that he's currently using, that he's used in the past to put him where he is today. Daniel, thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. I really appreciate this. It's an honor. Excellent. All right. So your story is so compelling, you know, to, to be a 23-year-old and go out there, as you were telling me, and, and start investing and realize this is a tough nut to crack if you don't have a great credit score and a, and a big, thick wallet. So how did it all work for you? How did you get this thing going? Yeah, yeah. So um, to your point, I'll, I'll kind of just paint the picture of where I was, right? So my, my family and I, we actually immigrated to the United States when I was five years old. Uh, it was 1999, which on a side note, I was a huge basketball fan in South Korea. And when I when we flew to the you know Chicago and O'Hare, the, the literally the first person I saw on TV was Michael Jordan. And I was like, ooh, this place is kind of cool, right? Uh, but nevertheless, I still remember we were at Domino's. We waited 45 minutes because I had won a reading competition that got me a free pizza that was probably the size of a Samsung Galaxy 20, right? And I still remember our family like waiting 45 minutes and my dad actually used a pair of scissors to cut the pizza into four different uh, pieces. And that was our dinner that night, you know? And so, you know, many nights of you know us sleeping in the car because we couldn't afford to pay the heating bill and... I actually remember we were in the park one time and I saw my mom picking up, you know, different plants and weeds. And, you know, I saw that on the dinner table two hours later. So, you know, life was definitely uh, interesting. But, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really, you don't think that you're poor. You think everyone kind of just lives this way. But I will say that the genesis of why I do what I do today, why I get out of bed in the morning, why I will still to this day read real estate books, just looking to learn new things and looking to experiment and looking to constantly expand and grow I remember when I was six years old and, you know, ever since I was a kid, I always had a tough time sleeping and it was like about 1.30 a.m. in the morning. I looked out and I saw, uh, we lived next to, let's call it a gentleman's entertainment center, right? Let's call it that. And I saw this man who was probably about in his mid forties. He was stumbling out and he was clearly intoxicated. He had a really nice shiny watch on. I still remember the street lights bouncing light off of his really fancy watch. And he wore a suit that was probably costing maybe between three to four thousand dollars. And he got in the car. I I don't remember the, the exact brand, but I remember it did have a big L in it, right? So it was a super nice car. He's driving away, and of course he's swerving. And I looked over ninety degrees to my left, and I see my parents sharing a twin bed in a room that doubled as our dining room table, as our kitchen, and as also as our living room, and also as my parents' bedroom. So the question that I asked myself was, man, what would it what would it look like if my parents had the 
ability to produce the resources that that guy who was stumbling out of the gentleman's entertainment center had or vice versa. Like what would it look like if the guy who was stumbling out at one in the morning had the heart that my parents did? Cause my, my dad was the type of man where he would give the shirt off his back, even if it was his last shirt. So um, that's what inspired me to want to do something big. Right. Uh, so I'm a faith driven guy. I tell people all the times that you can't serve a God that's so big and dream so small at the same time. So at 17, I read an article by Forbes magazine saying that out of the top 1% of people in the world, about 76% of those people earned their money by investing in real estate. And so I said, man, like that's, that's what I got to get into. Except the only problem was I had no money, as you said, right? I had no credit, no money, no nothing. I actually, a commercial lender at one point laughed at me when I was 22 years old. And I told them I wanted to get into buying apartment buildings. You know, and this was after I told them my DTI, you know, my, my credits and all these things. And when I first started learning about real estate at 18, I had negative $187.65 in my bank account. Uh, I still remember seeing a uh, two credit card max balance that was maxed out. And then, you know, I still remember that night where I dug through the dumpster looking for my dinner. So, you know, it was a really interesting time. And, you know, so you see that kid and you're going, wow, that, okay, so that kid's going to invest in real estate. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> like, let's, let's see about that. And then I learned this really interesting concept that there's actually four currencies in the world. Uh, There's time, there's money, there's knowledge, and there's relationships. And although I didn't have the money portion, what I did have was time and and I had the ability to receive and gather knowledge and also gather relationships and network. And I and I had this core belief, this conviction that I could use time, knowledge, and uh, relationships to create something for myself, to create something huge and fantastic. And that's kind of what sparked the, the information and the inspiration journey aspect of, of what I did, of the blueprint. So when you went out and you started finding properties, I mean, we we're talking about this and, and we comparing stories. Tell everyone about how you approach the acquisition side that, you know, how did you, you know, start contacting sellers, finding deals that were available? Because I think that really helps people that feel in this market and particularly right now, you know, you're stuck. I mean, we always talk about you don't go to the MLS, right? I've heard you talk about PropStream before. It's a, it's a great service that people can utilize. But even then, when you use PropStream, a lot of times you call them up and you've already lost those deals. They've already been sold. So explain what you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I tell people all the time, you know, markets may change, but people never don't. The great real estate investors I know, not the good ones, but the great ones, they always view every single deal through the lens of what problems can I solve? And whether it's 2008, 9, or 2022, or 2024, there will always be people with real estate related problems. So for me, the, the harsh reality and the philosophy I developed very early on that eventually trajected and catapulted me towards having a set of strategies that I use to gather deals where nobody has access to. That philosophy, that catapult was you never look for properties, you always look for people. Because if you're always talking about problem solving, and it's, that's the genesis and the mentality of how we actually build a real estate career and organization, well, we got to look for people. Uh, the properties just happen to be the asset that's exchanged, but really the business is between two people. It's between a buyer and a seller. A buyer has a set of needs and desires to fulfill for his or her investors. And then the seller has the same obligation, but they just have a set of problems that they need to be solved. So that's the question I started asking myself is, well, you know, how do I find the best people? And so I I looked at what my product was. And so I said, well, 
you know, if, if, the, if at the end of the day, real estate is just like business, right? I have my, my marketing, which ultimately is supporting my sales and then my sales, which eventually promote and, and the close, right? And my offer. So if, if I'm reverse engineering and I'm asking myself, man, how do I find good deals? Well, I got to know what it means for me. What does that mean to have a good deal? And for me, my product at the time was multifamily uh, buy and hold and still is, right? It's apartment complex buy and hold. And, you know, it was, it's funny because when people ask me like, Daniel, how do you raise capital? You know, how are you such a good salesperson? And, and the reality is, is I'm not. I'm, I'm not a good salesperson. But I just am very good at creating a situation where people want to buy. So even with my investors today and even back then, like one of the things I used to do is I, I had an irresistible offer. I tell everybody, you need to have an irresistible offer. And I used to give investors 100% of all the depreciation. And, you know, like there's a lot of other things that I did that really incentivize investors. But in regards to finding deals, I looked at my product. Okay, it was an apartment complex buy and hold. But another aspect of that product was seller financing. And so for me, I couldn't get bank financing deals, not only because of you know my age, my lack of experience, but also... Uh, my finances, they, they just weren't in the best situation, right? And so I started asking myself, okay, if I have to buy property seller financing, how can I create a win-win? Because remember, it's about people, right? Uh, how can I create a win-win for the other person on the other end of the table? And so I started, I spent about a week researching all the benefits that seller financing offers to the seller. And I got about a list of about six to 10. And I actually got it down to three, right? So I, I, I you know, compiled everything, all the lists, made a list as big as possible. And I took the best three because psychologically speaking, I think the human brain actually averages out the top three as opposed to, you know, the whole list. And so those three were, you know, uh, potential tax benefits. Number two was making money as the bank, which, of course, the banks are the, currently the richest entities in the world. Uh, so the, between the potential tax deferrence, you know, you make money as a bank by making interest, of course, and all that interest is front loaded. You know, all that profit is front loaded because of the amortization. And then last but not least is the ability to still be involved with the real estate industry, but have passive income. Because for me, it's never about the geographics or the demographics. It's always about the psychographics of who I'm working with, whether that's an investor or a seller. I want to know how people think. And I'm obsessed with that. I want to know what helps them go to sleep at night. I want to know what makes them get up in the morning. Because at the end of the day, my personal vision uh, is provide people a peace of mind, right? So even for all our companies that my brother and I own, at the end of the day, is to provide people with a financial peace of mind. So those are the top three things. And then those are the benefits of the sellers. And then the, the question I asked myself then was, well, who resonates with these benefits? Like who are, the, who are the sellers and the landlords that really resonate with potential tax deference, with, you know, making money, having their money make money for them? And then also continuing to receive passive income and you know after a lot of great conversations with my mentors and you know with myself and just a lot of research i found out um, that i'm, I'm going to be very careful seasoned landlords were the best people to to target because these were individuals who own properties for more than 27 and a half years you know they've had so much you know and the depreciation recapture at closing is going to be quite interesting for them right uh but on well, hold on hold on you wanted to be uh nice about it. i'll just say it. You say look for old people. That's, that's, yeah, not you're looking not for, me. Right? <laughs> old right. people like me. Well, maybe a little older than me. Like my right. father. My father's you know, seven. I don't, I don't think you're an old guy. Yeah. But my mom's always, you yeah. need to get rid of these properties because you're always out there. You're working on them and they, they're a hassle. 
And I'm keep telling my dad, don't worry about it. I'll take them over, dad. I'll, you know, I'll just give you the income and I'll manage right. them and run them for you. But you're right. That's the mindset. It's the older generation yes. that wants out. Sorry. It's, it's, it's the psychographics because yeah. I mean, even to your point, Clint, I mean, like 90% of all these older landlords, always 90% of the time, they had a wife who was like, when are you going to sell those properties? When are you going to get out of the game? When are we going to be able to travel? You know, and it just always made me chuckle because, you know, uh, I, I used to always have great banter, uh, you know, with, with those individuals. And I used to, you know, I made little jokes here. Like, don't worry, Mrs. Johnson. I got you. Know, I'll make sure your husband sells, sells me those properties. You target the wife because she'll make the husband do what that's you right. want. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, um, you know, I, I targeted older landlords. This is exactly mm-hmm. what I did. And so the next question, of course, I asked was, well, you know, for me, what are the best ways to find those people? Because obviously conventional uh, mainstream wisdom in the world of real estate investing is for everyone to do direct mail campaigns and, you know, hey, go on Zillow or, you know, use a wholesaler. Right. And for me, when I look at the individuals that I was targeting, I saw a different set of channels of being able to find properties. So, you know, one of the things I did and I know you and I were talking about this off the air, but it was building relationships with property managers who were 25 years in the industry because I knew that those guys had a group of their buddies who also own properties for, you know, 25, 30, 40 years. And so I started reaching out to property managers and I, I decided to create a little arrangement between myself and them. So I, I went up to them and said, Hey, you know, what's the minimum number of units you have to manage in order for your office to stay afloat? You know, and I would target these property managers that had between a hundred to about 600 units and under management. Uh, and they would always give me a you know, different answer, right? It's like, oh, I need at least 175. I need at least 187. You know, I need at least 196. And, you know, I asked them like, well, how would you like to have a situation where you never uh, go below the number you're at right now for management? And, you know, they're like, go on, right? I'm listening. Uh, and I would say, well, next time you have a client that wants to sell, um, have them call me first because I've got investors I've raised capital with. You know, I've got this. I'm looking for properties in your area. Have them call me and I'll keep you as the property manager. And worst case scenario, if you and I don't work out, if I don't think that you're that great of a manager, you can make your commission, you know, by being the broker. And so they love that idea because for them, it was such a win-win scenario, right? I was creating situations where people wanted to buy, not situations where I had to completely sell them, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was one. Uh, I, I think I got 64 units off of that strategy of, of building relationships with property managers. And then the second one was actually uh, calling for rent signs. Again, it goes back to the psychographics, right? Because I said, well, older landlords probably aren't going to utilize technology like, you know, apartments.com or, you know, or, or Zillow. I'm, I'm sure a lot of them do, but for the most part, you know, older landlords uh, don't really utilize a lot of uh, technology. So one of the things I used to do was for, for three hours on a Saturday morning, I would drive around the neighborhoods uh, that uh, had a lot of multifamily apartments of what I was looking for, my avatar. And sure enough, either A, they had a for rent sign out or B, the landlord would actually be in the premise working on the property. And because of my research, because of my, because of my setup that I'd done, probably about every three out of four people that I either called or met while I was there, you know, were probably 65 and older. And so that was, that was a great way that I found properties. I I'd actually did a couple deals uh, through that. And last but not least, I used to look at uh, newspaper ads. So, if, you know, if you go on the newspaper, I would see these for rent ads that were, they were there. And again, same thing. Sure enough, a lot of these guys would be, you know, 65, 70 or older. Yeah. I got an acronym for you. So here's your strategy. It's called BOLD. Buying Older Landlord <laughs> Deal. There you go. I love it. Man. I love it. <laughs> so um, 
the thing about that, what I like is that not only are you finding the older landlord, many times you, I would look at them to see what properties they own. The older the properties are going to be the better because they're having to put in more maintenance time, which makes their life more difficult. So if you can find someone that's older that has maybe 15 properties, maybe it's not a, a multifamily deal. I hadn't thought about that. That's even better because yeah. they have several apartments that they're, they're having to manage. You can get in there and, and talk to them like you did. So, so how did that conversation work? You know, when you approached them, typically, yeah. what was it like? Yeah. So Clinton, I'll be honest, you know, there was a barrier, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they saw me, they saw a guy who was, you know, a third of their age, you know, at the time I was, yeah. I was 23 when I was buying an apartment a month at that point. And they just kind of saw this kid, you know? Uh, and so the sales aspect was, was fairly difficult. And especially with the seller financing conversation, one of my biggest obstacles was, hey, like, can I trust you? You know, and, and it all it actually all started because these sellers started asking for like 40, 50 percent down, you know, and, and I started asking myself, why? Like, why were they so stuck on, on getting a, a bigger down payment? And, and one day I just got so frustrated. I was like, and I think the, the landlord I was talking to, his name was Mark. But I was like, Mark, is it is it possible? Or is like, Mark, if you don't mind me asking, are you asking for a larger down payment because you want me to have more skin in the game because you don't really trust my ability to run this property? And you know, Mark, I, I, he was a very uh, direct guy. He's like, Yeah, like I'm more I'm worried that you're gonna run this thing to the ground and I'm gonna get the property back four or five years later and I'm gonna have to end up putting hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix it up, right? And so um, that was great because whenever you are negotiating with the seller and you identify the real reason why they're doing something, yep. that's always a bonus. Because for me at the end of the day, like, again, I, I always care about the psychographics of what that person's thinking. So I said, well, Mark, would it be fair? Would it help ease your mind if every two years or every year or every three years, whatever you decide, I was subject to an inspection? And you and I split the inspection cost. You know, you, you can pick the inspectors, obviously, as long as it's not somebody who's extremely biased, you know, and I'm subject to an inspection every two years. And there's a certain standard that I have to uphold because my strategy is actually to fix up the property a little bit and raise the rent, you know, because that was, mm -hmm. that was a very uh, primary strategy of mine was obviously the value add, even back in 2017. Yep. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I, I think this would, is a great transition to another conversation. Back in 2017, I thought the market was going to crash in 2020. That's what I thought. I thought the whole the housing market and the stock market was going to completely crash in 2020 because I, 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 told, I was telling myself and a couple other friends of mine, like, there's, there's no way that these 10-year treasuries that were issued in 2010 are going to be able to be paid back. Like, there's just no way. Like, something has to happen. Either has to be, a, historically speaking, there's either usually a war a big market correction or a pandemic, which look at that, right? Um, but uh, when I had commerce going back, but when I when I had conversations with these sellers, that's one of the the addendums that I used to offer uh, in the contract with with the contract for deed. It was, hey, you know, every two years I'm subject to an inspection, and I actually found out that these guys like actually preferred a, a five percent down payment or ten percent down payment because it meant that their their money was going to accrue more interest, right? Which is more profit for them. And not only that, but their monthly payment was going to be bigger, meaning that they could, you know, go to Italy mm -hmm. if they wanted to, move down to Texas, do whatever they wanted. And so I, I've actually done a couple of deals where I put no money down, like whatsoever, which is pretty neat, <laughs> I got to say. Yeah, I mean, another way to do it too, if you weren't looking for an apartment building, but let's say you found someone that has 15 homes yeah. and you want to buy all 15 and they're unwilling to sell you all 15. What we've done before is said, all right, sell us this many properties. 
give us an option to buy the remaining and we'll record that option against the properties. And so if this doesn't work out here, what we're telling you is going to work out, then you know, you know, you don't, you're not going to sell me these other deals. So there's different ways to put this together to give the seller some confidence that if they, you know, it's a try and buy, right? Is this person exactly. really going to be able to live up to, to what they're telling me? So you gotta be creative. That's yeah. smart. Yeah. And you know, obviously I mentioned this before, but it just, for me, it all went back to, you know, how can I provide a better peace of mind for, for this individual? Because everyone's motivated and they feel safe or, you know, their, their risk is mitigated in different ways, you know? So I love that. I love buying a portion and then, you know, doing an option contract on that. I, I'm going to steal that if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, we, we did that one. Uh, it was going to be on a 220 uh, property portfolio. We ended up going through with it. We ended up buying down in Houston. This was a few years back in 2000 and actually I think 2018. And I don't know, you know, I look back on it. We would add a lot of cash flow, but the Houston properties, the package we bought down there, they've all tripled since then. Yeah, so. I was going to say. You know, yeah, that's right. That's awesome, so. man. Well, thank you for that. I mean, look, I'm here to learn too, man. Yeah, I know I'm the guest, but I'm, I'm looking to learn every minute of the day. So, Yeah, I mean, investing is so fun. Um, so you got this four strategy. Yes, sir. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So for the way that we even came up with the name was uh, the first movie my brother and I watched when we first came to the United States was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. And so we were always big Star Wars fans. So uh, really, force stands for you find the property, you own or finance it, you raise the capital, you lot you know cash flow, and then you cash flow it, which you know it's about management. And E is expanding your empire. One of the things I noticed a lot with real estate investors is they're really good at doing deals. They don't know how to build a business, which, you know, with, with my years of traveling and teaching and training real estate entrepreneurs, uh, and even for me as a real estate investing coach that helps people, you know, accumulate a rental property. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the most number one common obstacles or common mistakes that I see a lot of people make. Uh, I've, I've got a friend of mine who is a pretty well-known real estate figure. I won't say his name, but I'll, I'll say he's got a great beard, right? How about that? And him and I were having a conversation about this the other day, how like, you know, uh, and I asked him like, hey, if you had to start all over again, like what, what type of books would you read? And he actually told me, you know, like, and he's a very well accomplished real estate investor. And he goes, you know, honestly, I would, I would start by reading uh, books about business, just general business, because it's not enough for someone to do deals, but you know, you got to be your own CEO. You have to be your own CFOs, your CIO, I mean, HR, right? like you name it. And that's one of the things I noticed that a lot of people kind of struggle with is, is they know how to do deals, but they don't really know how to build a business on, on the back of that. Uh, so that's what the four strategy is all about. You know, it's all about from A to Z, you know, let's, let's find it. Okay, great. And then, you know, buy it owner financing or, you know, raise the capital and then manage it. Cause I think a lot of times people over romanticize the acquisition of a piece of real estate, but never the execution of a business plan. So, I mean, I'm a lifelong martial artist. I love martial arts. I'm a huge UFC fan. And one of the things my wrestling coaches would tell me is like, you know, because uh, he used to teach me using business because he always knew I was interested in entrepreneurship and business. He goes, uh, buying a business or buying a piece of real estate, is like, you know, it's like a takedown. You know, you can have a great takedown. You could do a, you know, a, a blast double and they're flat on their back. You got great positioning. But what you do with it afterwards is more important than even getting the takedown. If you can't record damage, then, you know, you can actually get submitted, right? Like with the person being on your being on their back. And so uh, that's what cash flow is all about, the management portion. And then, of course, how do you build off of that momentum and actually build a business around that piece of real estate? So that's the fourth strategy, Clint. Nice. You know, it's something that we teach as well in our events is that 
real estate investors need to treat their investing like a business yeah. and you know focus on the high value work that's going to make you money and not so much on the low value work because you see a lot of investors get caught up in doing things that they shouldn't be doing on their own like their own books and tax returns setting up their entities and to some extent it's the rehab of the property themselves i mean if if you're out there finding deals do you need to be out there holding a hammer and retexturing repainting the in interior or are you better off finding that next deal and hiring that out. And sometimes people get in their way because they don't see it as a business. They see themselves as an investor and they become trapped and they don't, they're unable to scale. So when they hear your story, 87 doors within a year, oh, that's impossible. Not if you have the right systems in place that will allow you to expand upon your talents, like you were obviously able to do. And I think that's key. And, and so many people don't teach that. Like you said, what you're doing is teaching that other side to understand it from that perspective. So yeah. you know, that's really, really important. Yeah, I would, I would agree. What are your thoughts on the market now? Yeah, uh, so uh, obviously one of the things I've done to really understand, you know, I, I've been blessed and my mentor is, he's pushing 75 now, you know, and he's, he's seen four different market corrections in his life. So, you know, I'm 27 years old, you know, I've never been an, an active entrepreneur, an active investor during a market crash. I wish I would have, you know, I mean, like I, if I would have gone back and told, you know, in 2000, let's see, 2008, I was, uh, was 14 at the time. I, I think I was a freshman in high school. I'm really mad at my freshman high school self that I didn't buy properties at the time. You know, instead I was busy playing basketball, right? <laughs> you know, that's like, yep. but, um, you know, what, what, one of the things I think about the market now is I follow a lot of different channels. I, I like to read a lot of books and a lot of reports on what's happening and, for me, I'm, I get very nervous. You know, I talk to a, I have a couple of friends of mine who are pretty high up in, in national mortgage companies. And one of the things that they've been telling me is, you know, it, it, they, they get really nervous at the fact that a lot of their mortgages, actually, the appraisal value is starting to be lower than the loan amount and the loan balance. And one of the things that I've been hearing from them, because as much as I love media outlets, I'm not really big on following, you know, media like CNN or Fox. I don't really watch them. I, I'd much rather get my data from the actual source itself, right? Which is the people working in the industry day to day. And um, one of the things that, that I'm hearing kind of all across the board is a lot of these mortgages starting to be underwater. You know, a lot of loan to value ratio is starting to go above hundred percent. You know, I, I, I met a mortgage guy the other day where, you know, they were doing apartment buildings. They were doing commercial loans for apartment buildings for three years now. They've been doing them on stated income. So it just, you know, it makes me really, really uh, scratch my head slash nervous. I think a lot of investors today are buying properties based on speculations of rents continuing to rise. And obviously that's been built, the, the rent bubble, as I'll call it, right? The increase in rent has really been built on the back of a housing market that's priced out a lot of uh, tenants, right? From entering the housing market. I'm one of those guys who believe that we've had a very much of a, a false lack of inventory in the housing market. If you look at government intervention, you know, if you look at programs because of the pandemic of stuff like the, the foreclosure moratorium, that's, I mean, that's kept millions of homes from re-entering inventory. And, you know, I'm also paying attention to a lot of these canceled contracts that are happening within the, the single family industry in states like Texas and Arizona. So, you know, I think, I think inventory eventually in the next coming years, potentially in the next nine months, will, will continue to balance itself out. I think personally that rising rates are going to decrease strength in the home buying pool because really that's my generation, right? The millennials, like we're the ones now, we are the primary home buyers now, you know, uh, I think that 
the age range of the millennial now is what, like 26 to 41 or something like that. I mean, we are the, the prime home buyers. Like we are the ones that, that like a lot of people are looking to sell their home to. So I don't think the, the liquidity and the financial strength of millennials is as strong as a lot of these home builders think it is. For that reason, I, I don't think rent is going to continue to skyrocket as it has. If anything, I think it's going to go down because a lot of these individuals who are going to, a lot of the millennials who have been waiting in the sidelines to enter the housing market who are, who are going to start going into. And obviously, when, you, when that happens, the first uh, individuals in the tenant pool that tend to leave are Class A tenants. They're mm-hmm. typically the first ones that tend to enter the housing market. And then, you know, who knows? Who knows what we'll see? But all I know is we've, we've seen a lot of Class A apartments being built the last two, three years. Oh, yeah. They're throwing them up all over the place. I was just down in Austin last year, and I just couldn't believe how many apartment buildings were going up as we were driving around because my daughter was considering moving there with her boyfriend. And I was thinking the same thing is that, you know, once this starts to settle down, you have more people, you know, more supply out there. The rents that they think they're going to get off of these deals, what they're financed on, it's not going to materialize because once you have more supply in the market, it's going to drive that back down, especially homes or people are moving in and buying the properties that, as you said, that shadow inventory that's been locked up there. There's so many factors. And then you've got the rent moratoriums that a lot of cities in the blue states have imposed uh, upon landlords. That, you know, how does that factor in once those kick in and, and they can start charging the full rents again like they, they intended to? So you got to be careful. That's why I personally think single family. I've always liked it. Yeah. Uh, older single family homes, even though your CapEx can be a little higher, but know your market, what your tenants expect and, and go from there. Yeah. I mean, even in my home state of Illinois, Illinois is not necessarily the number one destination for people wanting to move. I think we're actually number two in, in people moving out. But yet, even if you were to draw where I live and you do you did a 10, 10 minute radius, like a 10 minute drive radius, they're building about 3,400 units and they're all class A, you know, and, and a lot of the feasibility studies that I know that these developers have made their decisions on is, is predicated on a continued rise in rent. I mean, like I have a buddy of mine who's now my business partner who was responsible for a 364 unit development and, you know, they're charging $3,600 for a three bedroom. And even at that price point, you know, their, their margins are pretty slim. And I, I don't know how much is that, how much of it is sustainable, you know? So, I mean, even, even like, and there's a parallel, an interesting parallel, right? Cause even looking at the stock market, I mean, like, gosh, like how many, how many company, what percentage of companies in the S and P 500 actually make money? You know, I think the statistic that I saw was like 40% of are actually currently losing money. And so That's like, I mean, it's just been propped up by false predicate, like, you know, just kind of false value in my opinion, you know? So yeah, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see. Cause I know a lot of people are building class a all across the country. You know I mean? Even in my home state where people are leaving and I just, I just don't know if I'm very confident in that investment strategy right now. Um, well, so I'm sorry, catch up with something else. Yeah. 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 No, well, last thing I was going to say is, you know, what we're looking for our partnership is we won't buy anything unless there's intrinsic value, unless there's earned appreciation and not, or, and the uh, cash flow right now, Right as it, as it is, the income as it is is sustainable to give us a pretty good rate of return for our investors. You know, so that's we won't even touch a deal unless we can have intrinsic value and the deal works as it stands right now. Even if the rents weren't weren't you know aren't able to be raised, that's exactly right, and that's where you get into trouble when you think you're gonna yeah. make it on the come side of that that bet and uh, it's gonna pay off. And I was wondering about this just the other day. I was talking, so my daughter and boyfriend ended up living in Denver. 
And nice. they and class A pro, uh, apartment building moved in. It had only been open for about six months, and you know they they I thought it was fairly high rent what they're asking for a one bedroom. Well, five months ago, when those initial tenants came in, when they came up for renewal, they almost doubled their rent on them. And so they started, and then you start this mass exodus out of the building. And so my daughter assumed the same thing that they were going to double her rent. And when she went down to talk to them because they're coming up on their year, they said, Oh, no, 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 we're not, we're going to raise your rent $40. And she said, But I thought they go, Oh, we're not, no, we're no longer doing that. So I know it's an isolated occurrence, but they're starting to see that you just can't demand that uh, from people because there's more inventory out there, there's more options for them. And so that's going to be hard to make their numbers work, I think, for this particular property, if that's what they did when they financed it. Yeah. And even so my wife and I, we went from living in a four bedroom house to renting so that we actually mm-hmm. moved from a four bedroom house to renting in 2020, like right in the beginning, before everything happened. Right. And right now for a three bedroom, two bath, which, which we actually between her and I, we actually enjoyed renting more. Uh, but, you know, we're we're currently paying 22 right now for our three, two. And uh, we uh, we got noticed that they're raising it to 3400 And that actually is what prompted us to like move to a townhouse that we're moving to now. So it's just, and it, like they're losing really strong tenants, right? Because like, could we afford that? Sure. But I mean, at that point, it's just stupid to stay. Yep. You know, like why, why would we do that? You know, like our mortgage payment between taxes, insurance, like everything, PITI is 2600 right? For our, for our, the place that we're buying. So again, to your point, like I'm, I'm just seeing a lot of offering memorandums where people are making the assumption that the cap rate is actually going to be lower five, seven years from now in their exit than it is today. And I'm kind of just going, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know. I just don't see that data. Yeah. So find your market and figure it out and make those investments. Well, hey, it's been a great interview. You've got a ton of resources. So is there anywhere that people are watching, if they want to learn more on, on how you train and way you look at uh, evaluating properties, where they should go? Yeah. So we actually have a free real estate course. So uh, I think it's about 40 to 50 hours worth of content. And my brother and I have recorded everything from like a mini raising capital course. You know, uh, I have free meetups that talk about that. So really, if you just go to the quackbrothers.com forward slash free stuff, or even if you just go to the quackbrothers.com, there's a tab in there that says free stuff. And I mean, all the way at the bottom, it's called uh, Basecamp, and that's the free course. I have a you know free book that they can get. We have a free meetup every other Tuesday, first and third Tuesday of the month. Um, and even if people just want to say hi, I, I gotten in a lot of trouble for doing this, but I, I like to give out my personal email address. So if you, even if people just want to say hi, to say what's up, hey, yeah. uh, hope everything's doing well, or share some really crazy real estate stories, then my, my email is just daniel at thequackbrothers.com. Perfect. So I love. We'll people. have that information in the show notes as well, awesome. so they can just click on it and we'll bring them there. But uh, you know, it's been great having you on. I mean, this Thank this time you. went so fast. You have such an interesting story and the insight. I think that people glean from this is our bold strategy, right? That's right. How to go out there <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Anything else you want to say in passing? No, I, I actually this was uh, uh, I do a lot of these podcasts, I, and this was probably one of the ones I enjoyed one of the ones I enjoyed the most. So this is, this is really cool. It's very like, usually other podcasts I do is very structured and very like, you know, uh, for me, I just like it to be kind of go with the flow because really, even as a real estate entrepreneur and and an entrepreneur in general, you kind of have to be go with the flow. You know, you have to adapt and you have to kind of make pivots. So I really enjoyed this podcast. I hope, I hope more people subscribe and listen to this. Great. Thanks, Daniel. Good talking to you. See you, Clint. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. 
Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.